Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. Today's Friday Dig, or Diglet, is really not that diminutive at all. I have two interviews with two separate guests because too much has happened over the past few weeks, and there are too many smart people to analyze it all. First up is Marisol Lebron, a professor of American studies at Dickinson College. She is currently working on her first book, Policing Life and Death, Race, Violence, and Resistance in Puerto Rico, which examines the growth of punitive governance in contemporary Puerto Rico. Marisal is also one of the founders of the Puerto Rico Syllabus, a digital project about the Puerto Rican debt crisis. We're going to talk about how Hurricane Maria was, for Puerto Rico, a doubly man-made disaster. Not only has climate change supercharged storms, but the long history of U.S. colonialism and, more recently, the brutal imposition of austerity has also made those storms more dangerous to Puerto Rico because Puerto Rico's infrastructure has been decimated. Then I've got Brandy Jensen, who you might know from the internet. She lives in Brooklyn with her dog and tweets too much, but the baffler pays her to do so. We're going to discuss the past week of Republican grotesquery, including Trump's attack on black NFL players and right-wing Christian supremacist Roy Moore's Senate primary victory in Alabama. Oh, I almost forgot. We have at least 114 new supporters on Patreon.com this month. Our goal is to get to 125 before October happens. And so we need 11 listeners before October 1st to get there. Please hook us up and go to patreon.com slash the dig and make a donation before midnight on Saturday. That's patreon.com slash the dig. If you haven't contributed yet, press pause and give something now. I put a lot of time into these shows, and so does my producer, Alex Lewis. We're getting to the point where these shows are financially sustainable for us. And once we get past that point, we plan on making a major investment to improve the audio quality of our guests. But that costs money. To the nearly 500 listeners who have contributed already, thank you. And on to the show. Marisol Lebron, welcome to The Dig. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the context, explain what the situation is right now in Puerto Rico. I mean, I think the key thing to know is that Puerto Rico is in the midst of a a deep humanitarian crisis. Uh, The entire territory remains without uh, electricity. Uh, The estimate is that it's going to take about four to six months to fully reestablish electrical power throughout the territory. Uh, We are talking about situations in which people are living uh, with, with sewage in the streets and in their homes, uh, still with floodwaters in their home. Uh, I was reading a report this morning by the um, 
Center for Investigative Journalism in Puerto Rico that is just estimating that the death toll that the government is is giving us is is incomplete, um, mostly because communication is still down throughout the territory. So we haven't even begun to really know the effects of of what's happening there. And do you have family there? I do. I uh, my I have a lot of family there. My father's there. Stepmom, brother and sister, uh, grandparents, uh, cousins, aunts, the whole deal. And um, I've been able to hear secondhand about uh, you know my grandma and some aunts and cousins, um, but have not been able to make contact with my dad and stepmom and siblings or or my grandfather. Um, so it's very stressful. I think a lot of folks in the diaspora are um, feeling really helpless and trying to figure out how to uh, deal with this. And, and, you know, I think uh, a lot of folks like myself and, and others are trying to figure out uh, how to at least be productive in this period of limbo that we're all kind of in until we, we hear from our family. So I've been really struck and, and, and amazed by the uh, organizing efforts happening throughout the diaspora to raise awareness about the situation in Puerto Rico and to also um, get vital materials and funds in, in into Puerto Rico. Let's turn to the the why. Um, Puerto Rico has been under a brutal austerity regime in recent years that has made the impact of the hurricane much worse. First if you could explain the origins of the debt crisis and then how it led to the current austerity regime. Yeah. So I think, you know, that is the key thing to know is that a lot of folks are focusing on kind of uh, Irma and Maria and the immediate impact, but really the devastation that Irma and Maria were able to inflict in Puerto Rico is really because of these austerity measures that have been in place definitely since 2008 but they'd, um, and since, but really perceived that um, in terms of a general kind of neoliberal trend and, and, and continued kind of uh, uh, colonial neglect towards Puerto Rico, uh, the effects of these hurricanes are just so much more magnified than, than they, they would have been uh, had these austerity measures not been in place. So I think in terms of the, the roots of the debt crisis, it's really important to think um, with a kind of long historical view about the debt crisis. So uh, obviously in 2008, we, we get a kind of global recession and Puerto Rico is hit very deeply and, and it's very easy to pinpoint how, uh, you know, what Juan Gonzalez calls this kind of death spiral of debt um, really starts to, to kind of pick up into after 2008. But Puerto Rico had already been in a long-standing recession uh, long before that, for years before that. Um, and really, Puerto Rico, since it became a, a, a U.S. Uh, colony, U.S. territory, has just been periodically uh, hit by economic crises after economic crises um, that have not the the root causes of those crises are endemic to the form of colonial capitalism that Puerto Rico is is under. So we can think about um, 1898 even as a key moment of talking about the debt crisis, and then also 1952 with the establishment 
of the Commonwealth in 1952, we really start to see a kind of inflation of the Puerto Rican economy that's based on on uh, industrialized exports, that's based on tax breaks, the very same kind of tax breaks uh, for American companies that we're seeing, the privileging of American industry on the island that, we, that we're continuing to see, and they really have led to the debt crisis. And so, you know, Along with the Commonwealth, we have what's known as Operation Bootstrap established, which is um, dubbed this industrialization by invitation um, method of kind of, you know, supposedly modernizing the Puerto Rican economy, uh, getting it away from its agricultural base. And that kind of bubble that Operation Bootstrap creates of, you know, there are kind of measurable uh, increasing increases, excuse me, in, in living standards, but that boom that it creates really um, is is kind of enabled by the massive population exodus to the mainland United States, um, and through all of these kind of um, shady kind of tax breaks and and regulations, uh, they kind of mask the inability of the Puerto Rican economy to really provide for all of its citizens. And so uh, following the kind of collapse of that Operation Bootstrap model, um, this showing as soon as the 1960s, really in the 1970s, in a deep crisis where that model is no longer working, uh, we really just see Puerto Rico in these kind of boom and bust cycles. Uh, where the government is unable to address the ways in which this colonial relationship is is perpetuating these kind of economic crises. And how ultimately, um, in the lead up to the recent financial crisis and economic crash, how does that lead to a massive debt? Yeah, I think that we see that the Puerto Rican government gets itself into a situation where it is borrowing and borrowing and borrowing for necessary infrastructural upkeep. Um, you know, there are claims of of kind of uh, financial malfeasance, right, and corruption that also definitely um, play a role in terms of how the borrowing was done, why Puerto Rico agreed to such uh, usurious terms on many of these loans, and um, so, so we really see that Puerto Rico is 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 functioning and able to keep the economy running through debt, right? So, in many ways, what happened in Puerto Rico, um, we see it mirrored uh, in in various places, right? Um, and that's what we really see come to light after the 2008 financial crisis is the way in which this debt economy, uh, the the part and parcel of neoliberal economics. Um, really put these these country prime these countries for deep recession and crisis and also prime them for kind of further austerity measures um i think the thing to also think about in the context of maria and and how it relates to the debt crisis is that we're seeing these same um wall street hedge funds um worried worried about what Maria means for their ability to recoup their losses, right, or to um, make exponential profits on these 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 junk bonds, essentially that they had invested in and, and picked up for pennies on the dollar. And so, what we're seeing is them um, doing two things, right? Which is one, pressuring 
the Trump administration and the U.S. federal government um, not to place a moratorium on the debt. So Puerto Rico is currently in Title III and Title III uh, kind of bankruptcy hearings right now. And there's a question, they're supposed to have a hearing in about two weeks, uh, whether that hearing is going to happen, right, and, and, and what the debt payment structure is going to be considering the, the devastation of these, of these two hurricanes. And you see a steady and concerted effort by um, these hedge funds and, and, and really Wall Street vultures um, to prevent any kind of, of hold or um, to a resistance to accepting, you know, what's called like a haircut, right? So, so only getting a, a portion of their, of their funds back, right, of the debt repaid or having to take losses on the debt. So that's one thing that, that folks are worried about. And then also this kind of resistance to even auditing the debt, the, the debt in the first place, huh, right? Yeah. So a main, um, uh, a main request out of Puerto Rican civil society uh, since the installation of the Fiscal Control Board uh, and, the, and the imposition of the PROMESA Act is what the hell is the $72 billion of debt, right? And no one can answer that because there has been a concerted effort both at the local and the federal level to shut down any kind of auditing of the debt. And the reason why many Puerto Rican activists believe, that, and economists as well, right, believe that there is such a resistance to auditing the debt is that it will show that the majority of the debt was illegally generated and would be dismissed, especially now that Puerto Rico has entered into these Title III, um, uh, this Title III process, right? And so we're seeing intense lobbying not to issue a moratorium. We're seeing an intense lobbying uh, not to audit the debt. And then on top of that, there are these Wall Street firms are offering Puerto Rico more debt. So we're seeing them say, we'll give you a really good rate right now to help you um, get out of this crisis, right? Because I think that the, the, you know, the reality is the Trump administration is not going to give Puerto Rico the kind of um, federal aid that it's entitled to in order to, to rebuild. So just to, to recap the current history, you have a, a development model that's based basically financed by debt in a way that benefits finance. And then there's an economic crisis caused by finance, which leads to a debt crisis that allows finance to impose an austerity regime on Puerto Rico. Right. I mean, the dictates that finance is really, um, in some ways, driving the car here. And I think that's one of the most frustrating things that folks are trying to figure out how to plan a recovery when when so much of it is outside of their hands. How did that austerity imposed by big finance set up Puerto Rico um, for an even worse disaster when Hurricane Maria arrived and how might that austerity be an obstacle to a just and democratic recovery? Right. So I think that, you know, one part of it is this kind of colonial mentality, which is really placing the blame on Puerto Ricans. And what that blame is alighting or obscuring is how these austerity measures are really part of what, what deepened the debt and then made the, the kind of effects of the hurricane even worse, right? It's not necessarily... Puerto Rican incompetence and, and, irresponsi- and irresponsibility that does that, right? It's really 
this kind of, these kind of this imposition of these austerity measures. So an example, kind of the clearest example of how these austerity measures made the effects of Maria and Irma worse, right, is if we think even about Irma, Irma grazed the island. It, it wasn't a direct impact. And already with that, we had uh, the power grid uh, take a massive hit where people by the time Maria hit, still hadn't had electricity um, in various parts of, of, of the territory, right? Um, we did have losses of homes and um, vital infrastructure, even with Irma, right? So that speaks to, you know, how bad the infrastructure already was, which is because with since 2008, Puerto Rico has been foregoing necessary um, improvements to its infrastructure that it has needed for decades in some cases, but definitely within the span of the last five years. So even before these kind of catastrophic weather events, uh, we had a couple years ago where the island went completely dark for three years because of a fire in one of the electrical plants, right? Uh, we had the massive uh, drought in Puerto Rico. That happened when I was there a couple years ago as well, where um, the island basically had uh, water for about an hour or two a day uh, over the span of weeks. And so these are, these are infrastructural crises they were already problems. I mean, the kind of crisis that was happening in Puerto Rico's hospitals before this happened, where there was not only an issue of the physical spaces of the hospitals, but also personnel, because Puerto Rico's been losing so many doctors and nurses in this massive exodus of the past few years, right? And so um, once Maria and Irma hit, what we see is that the the kind of rubber bands that were holding together uh, what little kind of infrastructure existed on the island uh, got got blown away right and, and got drowned out. So the fact that a hundred percent of the island is without uh, steady power and will be for four to six months right is very telling. Uh, the fact that um, eighty percent of the island still doesn't have steady communication right. Um, is, is, is telling to the state of how the telecommunication infrastructure was on the island, right? Its sewers and aqueducts had needed substantial repair much before, right? And so these were all, all necessary repairs and infrastructural upgrades that needed to happen before these, these storms hit and that could not happen because of these austerity measures and precisely because the board has not given, since the imposition of PROMESA on the board, they have not allowed these upgrades and improvements to happen because they're trying to force Puerto Rico to privatize um, these public infrastructural um, uh, uh, groups, right? So um, members of the Fiscal Control Board have come out in um, national kind of newspapers calling for PREPA, for the um, power authority to be privatized. Um, it is likely... Wow, this is really like a shock a shock doctrine uh, style um, uh, exploitation of the crisis to push for privatization. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's what we're, we have to be very attentive to. And this is, you know, Katrina is really the lesson for, I think, Puerto Ricans moving forward of how to, um, what to resist, right? What kind of changes to resist and what we have to be, you know, I think there's a, a feeling of people just want relief. You know, people just want 
things to go back to normal. And so if privatizing um, it, public utilities makes that happen, I think people are going to be willing to consent to that because there is such desperation right now. And I think what we have to be very attentive to is um, how corporate interests, how the board are going to kind of make those the only options, right? Because they have been pushing those options for for a very long time already. I mean, the, the fights over um, privatizing public utilities um, date back um, decades, intensified during the 90s and, and during the 2000s. Under um, it, it, under the governorship of Luis Fortuño, where he laid off, um, he basically gutted the public employment sector. Right, he lays off um, thousands of public sector employees. Right, these have these have all been attempts to really push people's hands into supporting privatization. Most Puerto Ricans have been staunchly opposed um, to privatization. Privatization attempts have been met with deadly protests in, in the streets. So in 1990s, early 1990s, when um, Pedro Rosselló, the father of the current governor, attempted to privatize the Puerto Rico um, telephone company, um, I mean, the people were killed, you know, people were killed and, and, and beaten in the streets during these, during these protests. So um, really, there has been a staunch anti-privatization movement. But I think the fear is that if that is the only option to regain normalcy, then then people will feel like they have no other option but to acquiesce to that. Because now is really the perfect opportunity for them to try to push it through um, when people are less able to resist because they're just trying to survive. They can't even really get to the negotiating table because they're on the ground with the creditor's boot against their, their neck. So that's not, it's, it's a perfect moment for them to, to leverage this crisis. Absolutely. And I think the other thing is that, you know, not only is it the perfect moment to, to, to do this, right, because people are so desperate, um, but also, I mean, you have to think about the population decrease, right? There's less people to resist these things, right? People are not going to stick around for four to six months uh, with no power, no electricity, particularly folks that um, need uh, medical care, uh, who, who whose careers so are in maybe the tourism sector or other sectors that are not part are not going to be part of recovery efforts that are not going to be up and running. Um, for months, right? And so we have to think of this population decrease as not only um, kind of managing the crisis in terms of, you know, shipping off surplus populations, but also as um, really, in a sense, as an, as an uh, you know, a safety valve on dissent, right? There's less people, and particularly less people who are going to be the most likely to speak up, they are going to be around and able to do that, right? And so I think that that is is really key in terms of and has been throughout Puerto Rico's history in terms of how Puerto Rico has, uh, how the United States, excuse me, has been able to um, really manage these kind of moments of political and economic crises um, and, and their manifestations is, is by using migration as a safety valve. I'd like you to say a little bit more about, there's, about that. There's potentially a very large scale exodus right now underway to the mainland. And this is in the context of an already huge migration that has taken place since the imposition of austerity began. Can you explain what the what the scope of that yeah. migration is and how that's impacted 
Puerto Ricans on and off the island? Right. I mean, Puerto Rico's essentially been losing hundreds of thousands of residents for the past couple of years um, as this crisis has deepened. So now there are more um, people who are Puerto Rican identified living in the United States than there are actually living in Puerto Rico. And this is something that when I was uh, doing the research uh, and follow-up research for my book, um, talking to people who are in their, you know, teens and 20s, where, you know, they're just they're they're just pissed, right? They just feel like they want to stay and they are not being given the tools and options to be able to do that, right? And so I think we have to really consider migration in this circumstance as as really an act of colonial violence, right? That has made Puerto Rico um uh un unlivable, right, for people who want to stay there, right? That is essentially forcing uh migration. And the thing for us to also think about in terms of that is that folks are are leaving and I think that the attention has and, and the kind of way that the media has positioned it has been as a, a drain um, a brain drain right and so it's doctors um, the wealthy uh, uh, the highly educated who are leaving the island and what we see is that actually uh, the exodus is coming from all economic classes, right? Um, and so what's happening is that, sure, you have engineers and doctors and lawyers who are leaving and able to establish themselves in the U.S., but what we're seeing is that folks from the kind of middle and, and lower um, economic brackets are coming and are coming to places like uh, like Kissimmee and Orlando and all of these places in Central Florida, um, also traditional kind of um, points of Puerto Rican settlement, and um, they're they're encountering the same kind of unemployment or they're stuck in low wage um, service sector jobs, right? That are uh, not unionized with no benefits. They are paying the minimum wage, right? But that's seen for many, particularly after the imposition of the Promesa bill as, as kind of an improvement, right? Because Promesa, if you're under 25, um, you can be paid less than, than the minimum wage, right? And so the fear for young people um, and for folks who have already been experiencing um, exclusion from the form, um, from the formal economy is that they might not be getting the best jobs um, in the U.S., but it's better than not working, right, or not having access to um, certain kinds of social safety nets, right? So the ways in which also um, state benefit or federal benefits are extended to Puerto Rico is highly uneven, right? So people don't have the same access to social welfare um, in Puerto Rico that they would if they, you know, migrated to Orlando. And so that is key to what many people are making these really difficult decisions about migrating. And I think that that is going to only intensify in the aftermath of a marina just because the responses has showed from from kind of the federal government that this is not going to be an easy process and it's going to be a very long um, and kind of arduous process. One thing about the potential process um, that has you concerned is that the emphasis on debt repayment um, will prioritize, will lead to economic growth being prioritized over ordinary Puerto Ricans' basic needs. And that as a result 
boosting tourism and rebuilding San Juan in particular will be emphasized? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a central concern for for many, and I, we're seeing that play out even right now with um, how the relief efforts are, are kind of um, happening. And so, for instance, my family is in San Sebastian, which is in the western part of the island, and uh, they're com- they're just like completely without communication, right? Whereas folks who are in San Juan are able to get, and other parts of the island are able to get a little bit more a- access. Um, we're seeing that resources are not making their way um, into rural, the rural interior, into more isolated areas, and definitely not um, to the west coast of, of the island, right, and to southern parts of the island. So, and, and particularly not to the island municipalities, right, so of, of, of Culebra and Vieques, right, are also just substantially more isolated, right? And so what, what you know, the concern is, is that these kind of regional um, inequalities, these geographic inequalities that already exist in Puerto Rico um, are really going to impact how recovery efforts take shape, right? And we're already seeing that with the fact that um, supplies are not getting uh, very far. Well, they're not getting far because they can't find people to transport supplies and fuel, um, period, but they're also not getting far outside when they are moving, they're not getting far outside the metropolitan area, right? And so this is a huge concern for people. And the uh, the thing that we also have to think about is with this emphasis on economic growth, uh, and, and, you know, it's it's likely that, you know, the tourism sector is going to be pushed through this fast recovery um, because it is one of the bright spots in Puerto Rico's economy, right? And so the desire is going to be to get the tourism sector up and running as fast as possible, which will benefit the San Juan metro area in many ways. And so what we have to think of are those communities that are not um, in tourist districts or that are very far from tourist districts, what is going to happen to them, right? So what is going to happen to immigrant communities, uh, so Dominican communities in, in in Puerto Rico, what is going to happen to predominantly black communities, low-income communities, and, and rural communities in Puerto Rico that are not anywhere near a kind of uh, tourist hotspot, right, or not in these kind of gentrifying neighborhoods of San Juan, right, the, the, you know, they're not the next Bushwick, right? So what is going to happen to those places, Um post-recovery is is urgent. And so one of the things that I've been really uh, heartened by and and really impressed with has been the diaspora's attention to those inequalities um, in its fundraising efforts. So one of the things I've been extremely, extremely pleased to see uh, is the massive mobilization um, to get funds to Tayer Salud, which is a a feminist public health organization uh, in Loisa, is is a phenomenal uh, organization that has been there for been in Loisa, which is a predominantly um, Afro-Puerto Rican uh, and low-income community. Uh, they they've been in that community for decades, and folks have been trying to get funds to them. And and because Loisa lost 3,000 homes, it's estimated 3,000 homes as a result of of uh, Maria. And so I think the diaspora is, is really trying to be attentive to those issues. And I think that that's real because they're left still wondering what's happening to their relatives who are outside of the San Juan area, right? And so I think they're attentive to those kind of inequalities and are trying to figure out in their fundraising efforts, in these kind of brigades that folks are even trying to organize, 
um, to get materials and vital resources and, and, and help rebuilding um, how to get those not to the typical places where, luck, where likely federal funds are already going to land. Something that you focus a lot on in your own academic research is that one corollary to this colonial development model that has taken root in, in, in Puerto Rico has been police repression and incarceration. If you could say a little about um, what role that plays in Puerto Rican society. Yeah, I mean, I think I was just having a conversation with a colleague about this yesterday. I think, you know, um, it's it's coming out to play in some really fascinating ways post-hurricane. And, um, you know, I think there's been all of these rep- reports of, of looting, um, of people kind of stealing generators, uh, stealing, uh, stealing um, vital necessities from grocery stores or pharmacies. And what we're seeing is even in these kind of moments uh, is this kind of calling for uh, like a military or police crackdown on these, uh, on, on these kinds of uh, moments. So it's, it's really scary because I think people are just so scared and the, the kind of communication that's coming out is, is, is um, it's spotty. Right. And so people are hearing certain things. They're not, um, they're, they're, a lot of it is kind of, um, you know, worst case scenario kind of information. And so people are like, the National Guard needs to go in there and establish uh, a martial law. We need to send the, all the military in. They, essentially, people are asking for a kind of military siege to reestablish order. And we've actually seen in Puerto Rico's history. So one of the moments I write about in my own work is um, the establishment of a of a anti-crime policy that's called Mano de Contra el Crimen, or Iron Fist Against Crime, and which is essentially about sending um, – uh, the National Guard in alongside police into these idea uh, into these areas that were identified as kind of crime crime hotspots, right? And so what we see is that what happens is that the police and uh, National Guard are are almost exclusively concentrated in public housing and um, informal and low income kind of uh, communi- communities and settlements, right? And so this is something that with these requests to establish order after the hurricane. Uh, you know, the historical precedents are there for the kinds of injustice and abuse they are likely to follow. Um, and these expose really long simmering inequalities and, 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 and prejudices within uh, Puerto Rican society around race and class and spatial location, right? So one of the kind of most troubling things that I, I've seen um, was, you know, following reports that a Walgreens in the San Juan area had been um, uh, robbed, but then also burned. Once it had kind of been empty, uh, it had been set on fire. Um, the response from folks on social media was immediately uh, one calling for kind of extrajudicial murders of people who were caught, you know, supposedly looting, but then also people saying things like, well, they should go 
burned down Yoren Torres, which is a large public housing complex that was near where the Walgreens was, because you know, you know, supposedly, you know, their their rationale is like, well, you know, it's those people that did it, right? And so we're seeing these these really long-standing uh, uh, forms of of race and class inequality that um, are kind of also going to start reemerging during this moment alongside these larger inequalities that exist between the U.S. and Puerto Rico. So we have to be attentive to to both the inequalities that exist within Puerto Rican society between Puerto Ricans, but also between Puerto Rico and the U.S. And just to underline this, um, a lot of listeners probably don't know that the Puerto Rican police have a track record of brutality and corruption that's perhaps unparalleled by you know, would rival that of any of the most abusive departments in the United States. Right, that's correct. And uh, there, I mean, the DOJ report that came out about the Puerto Rico Police Department uh, a couple of years ago really pointed to what was a systematic suppression of people's political rights, as well as clear race, uh, gender, and class based brutality. So we see um, uh, particular kind of um, negligence when it comes to investigating issues of domestic violence, but also violence against LGBT uh, individuals in Puerto Rico. We see uh, particular targeting of low-income and black um, communities in Puerto Rico, and we see a particular targeting uh, uh, and, and desire to chill dissent among uh, left uh, and, uh, political groups on the island. So um, in particular, uh, kind of pro-independence, but also really um, student groups, uh, university student groups uh, that had been protesting around 2010 and 2011. So we, we see these kind of, you know, uh, pattern of abuse, right? The police are definitely, uh, uh, you know, there's no reason to think that just because a hurricane happened that, that suddenly it's a new police force that does not have these um, systematic kind of um, uh, concerns. Uh, and, and really the other reality is that, that Puerto Rico has uh, the largest police force in any U.S. jurisdiction outside of New York City. So we're talking about a force of about 17,000 officers for 3.4 million people, you know? And so the kind of potential for um, misconduct uh, and, and kind of social uh, control in this moment uh, on the part of law enforcement uh, is is something to really be mindful of, I, which is you know, I think hard for people to hear in this moment when they're concerned about a complete lack of the state, right? And so we know that the way that people tend to envision what it means to have the state in their everyday lives is is the presence of police, right? They're these kind of um, ambassadors of the state for for many people. Um, They're the most accessible kind of arm of the state, right, in many people's lives. And so I think folks are, like, not seeing the state at all and are like, well, maybe at least if we see police, they'll do something to help us. Um, But I think we have to be really careful about that. And it's a sad irony of the prevailing political economy that the neoliberal retrenchment of the social state really abets and justifies the expansion of of the carceral state. 
Absolutely. I mean, we see this kind of exactly this rollback of the welfare state, right, and this rollout of of kind of uh, the punitive arm of the state, right? And that's exactly what, you know, you see in Puerto Rico. So in many ways, Puerto Rico is echoing these uh, trends that are occurring around the world, right? It's really part of, you know, I think we tend to think of Puerto Rico as this like really isolated place, partially because it's a a chain of islands, right? Uh, But you know, Puerto Rico is, is, is really inserted into these global policy trends and, and plays a role in adapting but also shaping some of these policy discussions in really interesting ways. Um, and so we have to think about Puerto Rico as, as experiencing some of these very same patterns of, of inequality regarding the growth of these punitive structures um, that we would see in a variety of places, um, you know, just like New York, like like Ferguson, like L.A., you know, um, but also, I think we have to, you know, there is, there are things that are also specific to Puerto Rico within that, although it's echoing uh, larger global trends about uh, kind of how the punitive state is 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 rolling out and, and affecting people's everyday lives. You know, there are things that are very specific to Puerto Rico's colonial condition in terms of how those particular policies are adapted and who in particular they target under what rationales. And so I think that um, you know, we're going to see again this collision of kind of uh, colonialism and, and, and policing as a tool of establishing social order in, in Puerto Rico post-hurricane because that has been typically how the Commonwealth government has been able to govern, right, in the absence of them actually meaningfully being able to shape any kind of political and economic future for the island, one of the ways in which they have been able to shape daily life on the island and, and establish kind of legitimacy and authority has been pl- through kind of law enforcement. Before we wrap up, I just want to underline and highlight the colonial context once more. I thought it was really remarkable the other day when Puerto Rico's governor, Ricardo Rocio, felt compelled to remind other Americans that Puerto Ricans are American citizens. When you think about that, it just really sort of surreal. Yeah, so I think the poll said something like more than 50% of the Americans surveyed uh, had no idea that that Puerto Ricans were were citizens. And I think that's telling about Puerto Rico's kind of weird remaining colonial status, right? I think people are like, what the hell is a commonwealth, right? It's like, uh, what is Pennsylvania is a commonwealth, right? So, uh, so I think people are, are really confused, right? They're like, what, what is that, right? And I think they're also confused because it is uh, a racialized place. It is a place that is linguistically and culturally different from the rest of the United States, right? And so, or, or at least the mainland United States in, in certain ways, right? And so I think that that ignorance about American citizenship is, it like comes to light during these moments, right? It it came to light, I think, during the debt crisis in really interesting ways, which um, really promoted this hostility towards any idea of a bailout for Puerto Rico, um, but is also coming into play around, um, you know, why do we still have these, like, people? They're nothing but parasites. Like, we should just cut them loose. Um, Why do we need to help them? They got themselves in this mess, right? And so I think that you know, you're seeing a lot of this kind of reemergence of this this way in which there's a hostility and uh, uh, towards Puerto Ricans as American citizens, and really a devaluation of 
of their American citizenship um, in, in, in very over ways. Um, the thing, though, that is also hard in these moments, right, is that I think Puerto Ricans are trying to make a claim to resources and rights as American citizens, which is really, you know, throwing all non-citizens under the bus in these moments in really troubling ways, right, which is saying that we only deserve recognition and we only deserve uh, protection and resources because we are American citizens. And this has been a source of tension between Puerto Rico and its Latin American and Caribbean neighbors, right, is really the ways in which um, Puerto Rican citizenship has been used by Puerto Ricans to set themselves apart from these other these other kind of Latin American and Caribbean countries, right, um, and, and talk about kind of um, the ways in which their kind of uh, economic, seemingly better economic conditions, right, have been tied to um, American citizenship, but what we keep seeing is that that citizenship claim is extremely, extremely, extremely tenuous, right? And that, uh, you know, the kind of benefits of that, you know, that trade-off that, that, that Puerto Ricans feel like they're making, right, where, you know, they don't have sovereignty, but at least they have citizenship rights, um, we're seeing that those kind of rights are 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 there's nowhere near any kind of equality with them, right? So we can talk about also how um, part of what's causing the delay, right, with with um, hurricane relief packages is that you know Puerto Ricans don't have anyone in Congress uh, to to kind of advocate. There's no feeling of account political accountability right, to Puerto Rico, right? They can't trade favors on Capitol Hill, right? They don't have any power. So I think that this is, you know, these citizenship questions are really interesting because I think they, you know, perpetuate these kind of inequalities between Puerto Rico and its neighbors, between Puerto Ricans and other Latinos who might not be citizens of the United States, right? So um, what does it say about kind of um, the U.S. responsibility to the region in general, to anyone else but the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, right? That's kind of what these claims to citizenship do is say that, you know, all right, well, the U.S. has to help, I guess, help the U.S. Virgin Islands and Puerto Rico, but it doesn't need to worry about trying to help rebuild Dominica or any of the other kind of countries that have been um, just devastated by the passage of, of, of Irma and, and Maria. So I think, you know, it's it's, it's it's a troubling kind of effect that comes out of this need for Puerto Ricans to just constantly reassert their citizenship because it gets used in these problematic ways to say, all right, well, I guess if we owe these people something because they're citizens, we don't need to deal with these other people then. Marisol Lebron, thank you so much. And um, I wish you and your family the best. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Marisol Lebron is a professor of American studies at Dickinson College. And now, on to Brandy Jensen. Brandy Jensen, welcome to The Dig. Thank you for having me. So to start, I'm curious whether you were an IRL funny person before you found Twitter? <laughs> um, I mean, that's sort of an odd 
question to answer to like evaluate your own funniness. Um, I, I crack myself up regularly. <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that counts. I'm one of those really like insufferable people who laughs at my own jokes. Um, no, I, I, I mean, I've never been like a comedian, but, uh, I, I guess I just found Twitter and sort of took to it quickly. I mean, I've always had like a, a, a profoundly dark sense of humor, so that tends to help on Twitter. Um, but no, I was just a normal person. Um, I actually joined Twitter because I was working for, um, this terrible self-publishing company and I got this like bullshit job, um, being the content manager, which like is one of those titles that means absolutely nothing. Um, but they wanted me to run the Twitter and I had never been on Twitter before. So I joined just to like figure it out for work in 2015. Um, and just sort of liked it a lot and had a lot of spare time. I was living in Minnesota at the time and there wasn't all that much to do. So, I mean, I, you know, my brain was already broken in ways that, um, allowed me to, to figure out Twitter pretty quickly. And then, you know, it's managed to both materially improve my life and, uh, and radically darken my soul. And the upshot is now you never have to fix your brain. It's already, it's, uh, it's yeah, good to go. I've, yeah, I've, I've found my people. <laughs> I want to talk to you about some of the recent horribleness, which there's plenty of. And uh, yeah, you're going to have to be more specific, I think. <laughs> run it through your um, incisive analytical machine. Um, <laughs> the so the last week has been consumed by Trump's attack on NFL players kneeling in protests of police brutality. What do you think Trump is trying to do here if it's not going too far to attribute that kind of strategic thinking to him? Well, I mean, I I think it probably is going a little too far to attribute that kind of strategic thinking. I don't I don't know that he's trying to do anything besides assert himself, assert dominance in in, in whatever like bullshit ways that he does. You'll you'll often get these cries of like, oh, this is this is a distraction, and you know, functionally maybe it is, but um, he's not a he's not a smart man. He's not a strategic thinker. Um, you know, I think he just he he's driven solely by like base instincts, and so he you know this is this is what he does. He lashes out in these you know profoundly stupid and cruel ways. Yeah, he's probably not a strategic thinker, but he can read a crowd. And he was right, I guess, to know that that crowd of old white people in Alabama was very pleased to have Trump saying that he would put these unruly black athletes in their place. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, it, he, he came within a hair's breadth of, of calling them uppity. You know, I mean, this is this is essentially what, what he does is that, you know, he, he taps into, um, everything vile and cruel about America. And he, and he does it in these ways that are, that are interesting because, you know, he's, he's tacked this to this broad sense of patriotism. And I mean, I, you know, I would challenge anybody to ask Trump to, uh, recite the national anthem unprompted. And I, like, I would be very surprised if he could do it. He's not, you know, he's not a, a, patriotic man not that that word means much of anything um but 
yeah, he does. I mean, Especially he coming from what, a Canadian like you, Brandy well, Jensen. <laughs> well, that has been, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of odd things about um, being a, a, an expat, a foreigner um, in the States. I mean, healthcare makes no sense to me on any level in gun culture. But the weirdest thing is this like flag fucking patriotism <laughs> just is, is embarrassing. And I think is, you know, it, patriotism, patriotism is rightly viewed with, with a healthy sense of suspicion in, in Canada and, and other countries. It's, it's, it's weird, man. It's fucking weird to love your country that much. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like all the American flags as though when you get lost going down some cul-de-sac, you're going to forget what country you were in. And you're like, oh, thanks for the <laughs> reminder. I'm in the USA. <laughs> oh, yeah, it's uh, I mean, it's an odd America's understanding of itself is is uh, fascinating and, you know, all kinds of fucked up. And in some ways, I mean, I don't know that, that Trump understands that on any sort of intellectual level, but he's certainly tapping into that. You mentioned um, American gun culture, which um, oddly or maybe actually predictably enough does intersect with this NFL debate because the NRA came out with this advertising touting themselves as the leading defender of the flag and the military against all those who would disrespect it. For the land of the free and the home of the brave. From high school gyms to towering stadiums, every time I see our flag wave, I feel a humbling reminder of the brave who keep and have kept us free. I stand to honor the sacrifices of the generations before me. Heroes who charged into battle through bombs and bullets, who lost their brothers and still pushed through, fighting for every inch of our freedom. It's just clearer than ever that the NRA is not only hostile to any sort of gun control, but has positioned itself as this powerful force for the most right-wing elements in American society, really, like, across the board. Yeah, I mean, they also uh, didn't, like, Dana Loesch, I think had that like batshit video a few months ago, um, just talking about like protesters generally. And I think there was some indication. Oh, it was really dystopian. Yeah. Protesters. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it, it's something that, that would fit in, in, you know, like a Verhoeven movie. (laughs) It's, uh, we, you know, the, the, my, my ability to, to discern, um, reality from, you know, what would, what would actually work very well as a weird Twitter joke. You know, that's sort of, that's, that's been one of the stranger things, um, to experience is that, you know, all, every, everything that would have done well as like a joke on weird Twitter two years ago is now like made manifest. And it's fucking bizarre to be looking at people like Dan O'Sullivan and Matt Chrisman as like these odd prophets of our new dystopian reality. Weird Twitter precog. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is definitely, you know, definitely that's definitely darkest timeline. As liberals like to say, you know, this is not normal. Obviously, in some ways, Trump is obviously not normal. But in some ways, uh, this is yet another example, I think, of the ways in which he's at least an outgrowth, really fundamentally, of very normal things. The Department of Defense under Obama paid tens of millions of dollars to professional sports teams to promote kind of militarist patriotism. Given that, it's sort of not surprising that it ultimately became this this 
very extremist right wing cudgel to, to to attack black players with the sort of confluence of um militarism this kind of like dick swinging you know masculinized idea of of patriotism is is certainly nothing new um and yeah this idea that trump is like you know an aberration from the from the republican party like to my mind that is that is the biggest mistake that the clinton campaign made and that in you know in some ways dems continue to make is that you know they they refuse to yoke trump to like the conservative movement as a whole. Right. And that, you know, this is, he's not some sort of odd, um, aberration of, of conservative values. Like he's, he's just the most unsubtle realization of them. Yeah. And I mean, it was the post nine 11 department of defense under Obama that spent all of this money to, to promote the idea that football is patriotism is supporting the troops. So yeah, Trump takes it to like another, level, but on so many of these issues, it was an opportunity that was created by the purportedly normal people who preceded him. Yeah. I mean, the context is there, right? I mean, you can't, you know, you, you, you sort of all, all of the elements were in place for um, a situation like this to be taken advantage of, and they weren't put in place um, in the last six months. You know, this is, this is sort of a, a longstanding environment that had been created, um, that Trump is just able to take advantage of. And again, these really like unsubtle, boorish, you know, Trumpian ways that he does. <laughs> My last question on this is where you see the state of the the kind of analysis and popular debate over it right now, which is um, obviously the the widespread showing of solidarity across the NFL was on Sunday was a good thing, but it also reflects that Trump has been able to turn the discussion into like another piece of his reality TV show um, instead of something about the underlying issue that prompted Colin Kaepernick to kneel in the first place, which is a protest against police brutality. I mean, I'm not going to be able to say probably anything smarter than um, David Roth wrote a great piece for The Baffler um, about this, you know, talking about how this civic tick that we've developed, which is that, you know, we we feel like we have to broadly respond in some way to everything that Trump does. But what that ends up doing is like hollowing out what were very specific and directed criticisms into this, you know, Trump is bad Um kind of idea that, you know, barely counts as protest at all. And, and you see that happening in a few other arenas, right? That, that what became a a specific critique that had, you know, um, legitimate and, and discrete goals ends up getting kind of flattened into something that you can, you know, call the hashtag resistance. Right. And so that's, that's sort of the biggest concern. And, you know, like I'll, you know, I'll be very honest, um, sports is not like my particular area of expertise, but um, uh, you do see this happening in certain ways in the feminist movement as well. That you know what were what what are specific critiques of, of various policy goals end up um, kind of being flattened into something you know nebulous and vague as you know a a, a bunch of women in pussy hats or you know whatever the case may be. So the exhausting thing to think about is that this is just going to to keep happening in ways that I don't even know if, if, if Trump is going to 
be smart enough to sort of catch on to this, but he's probably just going to like stumble ass backwards into it is that any kind of debate that he weighs in on then becomes a, a way to like broadly, but really kind of toothlessly oppose Trump. I like, I understand that you, you can't ignore what he's saying, you know, that's not really like a viable approach, but the kneeling started uh, under Obama, you know, the wasn't a Trump protest and, and that it has become one. Um, I mean, I guess kind of like, it kind of feels good, but we often mistake what feels good with politics. Um, and, and these two aren't the same things. Yeah. Cause it's sort of, it, it, it feels good. I think to some people, cause it maybe smooths the, the sharper radical edge of the initial protest. Um, and that more radical edges an indictment of a system of, of mass incarceration and police brutality that's been uh, perpetuated un- under governments of, of both major parties yeah, consistently. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you've got, when you've got the, when you've got NFL owners, um, you know, ostensibly partaking in this protest, like I'm not really sure that it, that it has the same kind of coherence at that point. <laughs> yeah. Th- and those are like truly some of the worst human beings in the United yeah, States. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the question about how this stuff all gets sort of always like sucked up and appropriated by the Trump show is an interesting one because it's not, I mean, again, like Trump's not this great strategist. So he does have obviously some like skills at, 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 at reading like pretty precisely what his base wants to hear, I think, but he's no great strategist. Um, I don't think that everything becoming this Trump show has, has served him well. You know, he's, he's, he's failed over and over again at a lot of what he said that he wanted to, um, accomplish, but I also don't think it serves building a alternative to Trump very well. Well, it ends up, I mean, it just sucks up a lot of oxygen, right? When you're sort of constantly in this like defensive position, um, it's hard to devote like just even intellectual and emotional resources towards, you know, constructing some sort of like competing vision of the future, right? It's, we, I think, you know, it's, it's really important to keep an eye on like what, what happens after this, you know? <laughs> um, and that's, that's always been um, the the complaint about the Democrats as this sort of resi- the party of resistance. I'm certainly not the first one to point this out, that they, you know, being anti-Trump is not enough. Um, but yeah, that's, again, you know, it's, it's understandable because he is like, this is, it's an objectively, insane political moment. And so one feels kind of unsure what to do about it. Um, but obviously, you know, it's, it's important to, to devote some resources to, to like a leftist political imagination. Right. And one of the, I mean, you know, I don't want to say that there's like any benefits to Trump because this is, you know, everything's fucking awful. Um, but I think the one thing that, you know, that, his moment and this continuing moment um, says is, you know, fuck, fuck what you thought was possible. You know, Donald fucking Trump is president. Like you, you, you can't school marm me into telling me what is possible. There's a potential there for, okay, if this is possible, then, you know, pretty much what, what all of the, you know, the, the politics thinkers um, told you could happen in the country is, 
you know, on some level, a lot of bullshit. So let's reorient and let's start, let's start thinking about impossible things. Yeah. The politics as we know it being blown up, it's not about whether, you know, we're saying Trump, there's like a potentially good side of Trump. It's just like a, a fact that politics has been blown up and it's incumbent on the left to, um, appraise the situation and, uh, yeah. figure out the best way to move forward. Well, and to, and to, and to exercise, you know, a, a much more expansive political imagination, right? That, that we are not constrained by common sense or reality as we may have understood it two years ago. <laughs> like we just, we just aren't Donald fucking Trump as president. You know, that's sort of, that's like an effective rejoinder to a lot of, you know, single payers isn't, isn't possible in this country. Bitch, Donald Trump is president. Like, don't tell me what's possible in this country. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of people who are unconstrained by wisdom, conventional or otherwise, um, in a different way, um, I want to turn to Roy Moore. Who Who is also this, like, just insane cartoon villain of a person. And thus, like, a pretty, pretty fitting icon for the Republican Party circa 2017. Yeah, exactly. And they're and they're all going to fall. They're all going to fall in line behind him. Right. Like this is, you know, again, one of these examples of, okay, this is not, you know, Donald Trump himself was not like just a a singular aberration when it comes to the Republican Party. It's, you know, it's the outgrowths are everywhere. Um, You know, the interesting thing about our current political moment is that uh, everybody's so attuned to politics all the time that, you know, every week you get to learn of some new, just batshit insane <laughs> person running somewhere. Um, but yeah, I mean, you could, you know, there, I think there's, there's a, a, a real opportunity to, to force the GOP broadly to say like, yes, we, you know, this, these are the the people that are our party now and we, we support their policies. We also, you know, we're fine with this guy who thinks God did 9-11. What do you think <laughs> it pretends for the internal politics of the the Republican Party? Does this mean that the process of um, civil war and cannibalization that um, launched with the Tea Party is only going to get get crazier? I mean, I don't I, I don't I don't know. I'm not you know, I'm not in the prophecy business. I don't. I, I certainly uh, I'm not one of those who has any sort of faith in the idea of, you know, a moderate or an upstanding Republican. They don't that that's a fucking unicorn. They don't exist. I think there are pretty good examples uh, on in the smaller scale of how, you know, our our, you know, maybe 80s or 90s understanding of like, you know, business Republicans um just end up getting the shit kicked out of them by this like more fringe element of the party. I mean, as, as from what I understand, that's essentially like what's been happening in Texas and um, a few other places. So, yeah, I mean, I, you know, anybody, anybody who's waiting for, um, you know, moderate right thinking Republicans to save the party from itself, I think it's going <laughs> to be waiting a long fucking time. Yeah. I mean, the business establishment that um, people like, Roy Moore are taking down um, that business establishment is is a is a Frankenstein that's created and relied on these monsters for all of these years and now they're getting eaten alive by them it's not it's not surprising they're getting eaten alive by them but I mean I 
for the most part, like as long as as long as the GOP is willing to sort of redist- redistribute wealth upwards, they will abide any of this. You know, they will they will be fine with this like fucking weirdo dude riding a horse to the polling station and trying to make being gay illegal. They don't care as long as they get their tax cuts. So there's, you know, nobody's, nobody's coming in to save the Republicans from themselves. We just have to destroy them on every level. Fun fact before I let you go, the um, Senator Luther Strange, who Roy Moore defeated um, my mother's family's, Great, amazing name, fantastic right? Fantastic name. Can we just for a moment appreciate the name and the fact that this dude is like seven feet tall? I mean, again, weird Twitter jokes made flesh. <laughs> yeah, straight out of Birmingham. But you have a story well, about yeah, it, right? Yeah, my mom's from Birmingham, and when she was young, um, my my aunt dated Luther Strange. No. Yes. And according to my mom, my grandfather would call him Strange Luther. <laughs> oh, get your grandpa on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, well, RIP. I, I, I don't think he would do it if he was around, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it's not not quite as not quite as good as the guy who was college roommates with um, Ted Cruz and uh, Ted Cruz? snitched on him jacking off, but pretty good oh god can we not I, yeah i really don't Sorry. although i will say um ted cruz liking a porn tweet was objectively the best thing that's happened maybe since the inauguration that was like a reminder that um things can be fun and we can all come together in like the the shared uh occupation of dump dunking on ted cruz that you know what that's a vision for the left that's what solidarity feels like you know when you all when you when you all come together for common cause and that common cause is dunking on somebody as objectively fucking awful as ted cruz <laughs> we've got to take our respite where we can find it brandy jensen exactly. thank you so much thank you for having me Brandy Jensen lives in Brooklyn with her dog. She tweets too much, but the baffler pays her to do it. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once was overheard saying, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week, usually twice a week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our postmaster general is Christian Tyler. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And if it's on iTunes, leave us a review. Those reviews not only feed the corporate Borg over at Apple, but also help introduce us to new listeners. What also helps introduce us to new listeners is for you to tell your friends to take a listen. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And please, last but certainly not least, find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a contribution. We need your help to keep this thing going.